Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Good morning, everyone, and happy Thursday. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to give us a hand, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, as well as follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook and at Snapshots in on Twitter. All right, guys, good news. We're that much closer to Friday. I'm going to keep this one really, really short because as you know, you've heard me talking about it and complaining about it. I'm still moving. I'm actually doing this right now from the floor of a spare bedroom in my house. But a couple quick things. Saw there were a couple of coaching changes this past week. Sorry to see that Joel Quinville and John Stevenson got let go. I'm a huge, huge fan of Joel Quinville. I know he's going to wind up somewhere else. Be kind of cool if he wound back up with the Blues again. They're not doing so great. But while I was reviewing the standings, did anybody else notice that the Islanders are leading the Metropolitan Division? Even without Johnny T. Pretty incredible. Glad to see that things are going well and Barry Trotz is leading the way. We're here. We got part two of our interview with Brad Marsh. Just to pick up where we left off on our prior episode, we reviewed the first two rounds of the 86-87 playoffs with Brad. In this episode, we review the final two rounds, and we also talk about what they did after uh, the final game. So anyways, like I said, keeping this one short, I'm getting ready to go watch the Caps-Penguins game. We'll catch you on the flip side. Enjoy the interview. Just a quick note, I know I said we were going to get started. As I mentioned in part one, Brad was driving on the highway during this interview, so unfortunately, a little bit towards the end, gets cut off just a touch. Nothing that I think will detract from the interview itself, but I just wanted to apologize for the audio issues. We're going to have Brad back on, so I'm sure if there's anything people want to hear, uh, just shoot me a message on Facebook or on Twitter, and I can always re-ask questions if you had trouble hearing something. Anyways, now here's to the interview. The Flyers get ready for the third round. You end up drawing the Montreal Canadiens, the defending Stanley Cup champions. They had just played seven games against the Quebec Nordiques. Mike Keenan is quoted in the May 4th issue of the Philadelphia Inquirer saying this could be a very rough series. What were the Montreal Canadiens like during this era? I know in the 70s, they were the freewheeling, passing Montreal Canadiens. Had they changed from that in the 80s? I mean, I wouldn't really think of the 70s Canadiens as rough teams. Yeah, no, no, I would never put that handle on the Canadians as rough, but they played the game hard. Yes, they had some very, very talented players, but they also forechecked hard. They checked hard. Neutral zone check was, was they were always on you. You had to be on your toes when you played the Canadians. And then, you know, back in those days, too, is the makeup of most NHL teams were Canadian-born players and it was such a thrill to play against the Canadians or the Toronto Maple Leafs for that matter, because as kids growing up, especially my era, my age, there's only two teams in Canada and <laughs> you liked one, you liked one and you hated one. Yeah. And when I say, when I say hate, it's more of a hate out of respect. Right. I hated the Montreal Canadians, but I also respected them because they were such a good organization. And I say organization, I had a team, it's a lot of good teams, but they're not very good organizations. The Canadians are the class of the NHL, have been for a long time, and will continue to be for a long time. Their fans are tremendous. 
the old Montreal Forum was an unbelievable place to play in, and just the electricity and the atmosphere walking up to the rink, the fans, and so on. It was just a, a great place to play. So personally, I was very excited to play the Montreal Canadiens because of the mystique about the Canadiens. It was just a, a, a great series, and the Flyers had beat Montreal in the 70s several times, and there's, I don't know if bad blood is the right term, but... Bit of a rivalry. Yeah, and so that was still fresh in, in the team's mind, the organization mind, and more importantly, that's still fresh in the Flyer fans' mind. So it was a good draw for us. Games one and two are split between the two teams. Game three heads to Montreal, where Ron Hextall shows everybody that he's the real deal. The Canadians outshot the Flyers 39-18, to and Hextall anchored the team to a 4-3 to win. Hextall was stellar. He is still not in the Hall of Fame today. I know he had some great seasons in the 80s. Do you think he belongs in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Oh, I don't I don't know. I, I, I don't know his career. I know what he did for the Flyers when he was my teammate, and I know he was always one of the best goalies in the National Hockey League. But I don't know what the stats are of the players, of the goalies that are in the league, or what the bar is. It does seem to me that the bar has lowered a little bit, and they're letting in players where I kind of think, well, how come they're in the Hall of Fame? Sure. But for what Hexy did uh, in that 1987 year and then 1987 Stanley Cup playoffs was second to none. And whether that gets him in, uh, his career stats should be looked at, I'm not sure. But when you talk to hockey fans and they start talking about goaltenders or players for that matter, there's a lot of players that fall into the category of fans think that they should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I often look at players, did they change the way the position was played? Then you look at Bobby Orr, obviously great player, I think the, the best of all time. That ranking or rating, I think, changes with the age of the person that's making the statement. I was a kid watching Bobby Orr, and wow, what a player. But he changed the way the game was played for generations of defensemen that came after him. And if you look at Ron Hextall, he's changed the way goaltenders played the position for years and years, he was the first goalie to handle the puck the way he did. He was the you know first goalie not only to handle the puck, but he didn't hesitate to come out to the hash marks to get a loose puck or didn't hesitate to go to the corner to get a loose puck. And now if a goalie can't handle the puck, he pretty much isn't even considered to be draftable or, or right. on your roster. It's a detriment to the team if your goalie can't handle the puck. No, he used to come behind the net. He is the one that created all that. Exactly. And I think he had a better shot than I did, for heaven's sakes. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we talked about our, our power play and, and so on and so on. But our penalty killing was always up at the top of the league. And Hexy was a big part of that penalty killing. Yeah, he stopped the puck. But a lot of times when teams would dump it in, he was out to get it. And as quick as they dumped it in, he'd have it on a stick and he would shoot it out not only just shoot it out over the blue line, but he could shoot it out, wrist it out, and over everyone's head, and it would be in the other team's zone, and they all had to retreat and regroup and then attack again. And we had a standard play with Hexy. The team would dump it in, and Proppy or, or, or Pooley would stand at the center ice face-off dot, and you know Hexy would rifle it up through the center, and they would glove it down and quite often have a breakaway. I feel like he was almost a third defenseman back there. He could yep. 
bang it off yeah. the boards and you add set plays. And so it, with, with that in mind, given that he changed the position, I don't see how he's not in the Hall of Fame. But we will continue on. Game four is in Montreal and the Flyers make it two for two over the Habs. The Canadians change things up by playing uh, the prior year Stanley Cup MVP, Patrick Waugh. He did not start in the series, but he ends up getting chased out of the net. Pelly Eklund has an unbelievable breakout game. He lights the lamp three times for a hat trick. We haven't talked a lot about him. We talked about the skill that Tim Kerr had. What did Pelly Eklund have? If you look at the makeup of the league back then, it was still size and it was still the game was still played in straight lines up and down the ice. And yeah, there's a little bit of weaving and jumping into the opening, if you will. Well, he was one of the first players that came over from Europe that was a, a dipsy doodler, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, could, could dance on a skates, could stick handle in a, in a telephone booth, for heaven's sakes. A little bit like <laughs> Rick, you know, Rick Middleton, you know, nifty as they called him. And he was one of the most dangerous players to, to play one-on-one. He never beat you with his, with his speed, but he could deke you out of your jockstrap in a minute. And, um, <laughs> well, Pelly Eklund, he could deke you out of your jockstrap. He could beat you with speed. The give-and-go pass that he brought to the game it was a lot of players that, you know, they could not defend against it. it a little, uh, you know, a little chip to one of his wingers, and then he would dart into the opening, and he'd get it back, and then, then we were away to the races. And so he, he was, you know, he'd, he'd be a freaking superstar in today's game. Absolutely. And, you know, so once again, he brought an element to the Flyers that people weren't used to seeing. What's what's going on here? They're supposed to be knocking everybody on their arse. And here's Kelly Eklund dancing around everybody. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Game five is a little bit of a heartbreaker. You guys were set to win the series, but it doesn't turn out that way in the game five. In the Philadelphia Inquirer, you're quoted as saying, definitely, we feel like this is one that got away. We had more life before this game than we did in game five against the Islanders. So definitely a tough loss. But game six will go down in the history books as an interesting one. Before the game even starts, before the puck drop even takes place, a brawl happens and erupts, the locker rooms clear out. Do you have any memories of this? What exactly happened? What started it all? Well, the thing is, is yeah, you're right. I mean, everybody loves talking about that, wants to hear about that. It, it never uh, hasn't happened since, and et cetera, et cetera. And it was just one of those things, emotions. I mean, playoff hockey is, is playoff. Any sport is, is always so exciting, and the emotions are running high, and Back in those days, once again, like now with the professional sports, there's this, it's a whole entertainment package, if you will. And you come to the game, and there's so many things going on. There's so many activities. There's great food at the arenas now. There's cold beer at the arenas and so on. And so on. granted, there was beer in the arenas back then. But warm-ups, you know, back in the day, that was such a part of the game. The stands, a lot of the times, were packed. I remember and they didn't grab that last beer or they weren't in the parking lot or they weren't doing these fun, entertaining games that are part of the professional sports now. And so you come out to the Montreal Forum and the place is packed. It's electric. It's loud. And as I like to tell people, it was real noise. It was loud noise, real noise. It wasn't the artificial pumped in noise with music and the fanometer and the clap meter and all that stuff. The fans made the noise all by themselves for heaven's sakes. And it was just such an exciting atmosphere or environment. But, you know, Montreal, they, the 
they always caught the mule. You know, he had the the routine, if you will, of he left the ice, he shot the puck in the in visiting team's net. And, you know, we had talked about it, and, and good old Chico Resch, the old-timer, who was our uh, you know backup goalie at the time, he was, caught, he was kind of dilly-dallying, dilly-dallying, and he saw Lemieux shoot the puck down towards our net, and then all of a sudden he races out on the ice and, and stops the puck from going in. And I don't think the story has taken on so many different versions and twists and folklore and all that stuff. I don't know if he got there and stopped it standing up, or I've heard that he slid across and stopped it, was on the goal line, and he stopped it from going in the net, et cetera, et cetera. But anyhow, you know, Lemieux came down and said some things, and then Eddie Hospitar jumped on the ice, and next thing you know, all hell broke loose, and one of the trainers comes running in and says, guys, there's a fight on the ice. And so, of course, being flyers, boom, we all head out on the ice and the Canadians head out on the ice and Brownie and Chris Neal, like that was the title bout of the warm-up there. And Brownie, he, like most players, they take off their sweater and the jersey and their shoulder pads, elbow pads, and, and they relax until game time. And Brownie had taken his stuff off. He come out on the ice and he just had on his hockey pants and some suspenders folded up his hockey pants and Nylon had all his equipment still on and so when they started fighting Brownie, like all fights grabs onto his shoulders and starts swinging well Chris Nylon had nothing to grab onto oh god so so he was kind of flailing away if you will and so anyhow then there was other fights and uh it, it was I was saying how electric the atmosphere was prior to that but man alive was it going crazy in the old Montreal form where were you during all this? Did you pair off with somebody? Well, I was paired off with Larry Robinson. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, neither one of us wanted to, to fight, but obviously neither one of us wanted to, to give an inch. And so we were holding on pretty good and pushing each other around, kind of surveying things. So I never actually got in a fight, but I had the, a front row seat to all the action. <laughs> I'll say you can't get a better seat than that. No penalty minutes are handed out after this brawl, which I think is awesome. But the Philadelphia Flyers go on to win game six, and you're going to the Stanley Cup finals to play the Oilers again. What were you feeling after, after that game six, getting ready to go play the uh, Edmonton Oilers? Well, you know, we were, needless to say, we were feeling pretty good. And needless to say, we were all pretty excited about what just happened, the brawl on the ice, and we come back and won in the Montreal form. And uh, um, it, it was it, it was pretty cool to be a flyer at those at, at that time. We had a little taste of the old-time Broad Street Bully flyer action, and then and, and we scored goals, and we stopped pucks, and uh, it, it was just fun. And I think if... Uh, you know, the game is is hard. The game is tough, and the game is very much a business, especially nowadays. Yep. Very much a business. Everything is uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stake with the, with each playoff win. But at that time, it was so much fun to be playing hockey, playing the game of hockey. Uh, you know, we beat the Rangers in, in uh, Madison Square Garden. It was excellent place to play and then we beat the islanders who you know had won four stanley cups you know in the early 80s and then we beat canadians most storied franchise it, it was just fun to be a hockey player at that time 
85 finals with the Edmonton Oilers. You talk about fun to be a flyer at that time. How has the city reacted to you guys going to the finals? Everywhere you went, they're talking about hockey. Everywhere you went, they're talking about the flyers and you're going to kick ass and so on and so on. It's, it's just a great atmosphere. So the city was electric. The, the flyers at that time, the organization, they were, you know, they'd won two Stanley Cups in the 70s. They were to the finals in the 80s. They were to the finals in 85. So they were used to being successful and they were hungry for a win. Was Rexy still around at that point? I know it had burnt down, but was it was that still kind of the local watering hole for all the Flyers? Um, Rexy's is still up and running, and uh, they got new ownership. Uh, but it's not the hockey bar that it was back in the in the seventies. I think it was one of those uh, watering holes that the guys stopped at because it was the first bar over the bridge, if you will. And we most of the players lived in South New Jersey and went across the bridge, the Delaware River, and the Spectrum is located right there. So on their way home, uh, Rexy's became the watering hole. But anyhow, guys had lots of watering holes. So, uh, you know, the Rexy's phenomenon of the 70s, and it, it slowly drifted away. So by the 80s, you guys are no longer really hanging out there. That was more the Broad Street Bullies. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, okay. You know, I still I still stop in there. They've got some hockey stuff up on the walls and all that stuff. They've got great food. Oh, that's cool. Great food and cold beer, so it's all good. As I mentioned, this was a rematch from the 85 finals. We've we've touched on that. Teams match lines in the playoffs. You are one of the top pairing defensemen. Do you recall which line you were matched up against against the Oilers? Well, you know, once again, you know, we we did play 4D, and so, you know, you couldn't play against one particular line all the time. The game, especially the way Edmonton played it, was so fast. You had to be on your toes all the time. Game one is up in oil country, and it's a win for the home team. Everybody talks about how potent their offense is. And you had Gretzky, you had Messier, you had Yari Curry. But from everything I read in that game one, it sounded like the Flyers really had a tough time penetrating the neutral zone and setting up plays. If the offense is so good in Edmonton, how would you describe their defense? Well, I, I think you know Edmonton is a classic example of a team that that adapted to the various situations that they had to adapt to. You know, they were free flowing offense. They were the first team that really you know full steam ahead. Five guys joining the rush and pass the puck and move the puck, gain with the puck. I remember they you know when Edmonton first started getting good. Uh, and they came into the NHL to, you know, obviously had Gretzky, but they, you know, they had all these fast guys in their practices. It was very intimidating to sit there and watch practice for heaven's sakes because they could do the way they moved the puck in practice. Was, holy crap, this is unbelievable, the tempo that their practices were at. But, you know, they, they won most of their game by high-octane uh, offense. Uh, you know, Grant Fear, I know he's in the Hall of Fame, and, and you know, he... he a lot of people talk about him being one of the best goalies of all time, but you also have to give him credit, too, because uh, there was a lot of times he was hung out to drive because all five guys were forced, forced up the ice. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they won a lot of games by high arcane uh, offense, but they also won a lot of games that were, you know, 7 4 and 8 5. And Grant Pierre's biggest save of the game was perhaps uh, to keep the other team off the board and not let them score their fifth goal. <laughs> and, and so, he, you know, he never got down on himself. He was he was a good player, like really good player for them. But back to, they realized that, you know, we were the real real deal. They had played us two years before in the Stanley Cup Finals. And, 
and uh, we had several great games against them during the regular season. And so they realized that they couldn't do the high octane offense, and, and so they adapted well, and they they did play good defense and uh, in the series. Game two is at Northlands Coliseum. It's another Oilers win. You were playing back on defense. As we touched on, they are loaded in offense. Is there a player in your mind that sticks out to you that kind of was very difficult to defend against or made you open your eyes or you always knew that they were out on the ice that played for the Oilers during this period? The thing about the, the Oilers, yes, like we've said a couple of times, you had to know who was on the ice, but on the flip side, yeah, they had some pretty good offensive guys, you know, Gretzky, Gretzky Curry, and Messier, for heaven's sakes, but they had they had three and four lines that could score and, and also skate. You know, they then they added Kent Nielsen to their lineup, for heaven's sakes, and so you just got bad done battling Gretzky and his line, and they come back with Kent Nielsen, like pretty damn good player. So they, they just had all the weapons there, and I, I remember saying, and I still say all, all the time, you know, the Oilers, I think they have six players in the Hall of Fame. You know, we have one, which is Mark Howe. He was inducted. Right. He was the last one inducted a couple of years ago. And so I remember saying, and I, I honestly believe that we have a better team. They just have more superstars. Game three returned to Philadelphia, and you were down 2 nothing in the series. The game starts off with goals from Mark Messier and Paul Coffey. But then the Flyers come back. You guys end up getting goals from Murray Craven, Peter Zezel, Scott Mellenby, and Brad McCrimmon. Brian Propp ends up ending it with a uh, open net goal. It's a five to three win. After you're, when you're down two nothing, and I, I know everybody says that they they never give up and there's no thought in their mind. But when you're down two nothing, are you guys depressed at all a little bit, or is it true that you just stay in the fight? Because I mean, clearly you guys did here. You know, it's hard to say what goes through 20 guys' minds that are sitting on the bench. Uh, but I touched on it before. We, we have such a, we had such a great leadership core. And, and yeah, it's easy to say, yeah, there's no give in us. There's no, you know, there's no quitting in us. Uh, but, you know, we, we just kept going, kept the grind going. And if it wasn't one guy or one line, it was the next guy, it was the next line. And we just kept going and going and grinding and grinding and, and we needed a break, and we got a break. We scored some goals. It was a new series at that time. Game four, the physical play continues to pick up. Hextall seemed extremely frustrated. It was a loss for the Philadelphia Flyers. He ended up slashing Kent Nielsen, who we talked about a few minutes ago, and ended up getting suspended the following year for it. Game five, the Oilers, in their papers, already announced the victory parade date prior to game five and got off to a commanding 3 nothing lead, but you guys turn it on and come back with four unanswered goals. Do you recall hearing about the parade or anything like that? You know, not really, but the way I look at it is they had every right to think that they were going to win. They, their fans and so on, they had every right to think that they were going to get win the game, win the Stanley Cup. And, you know, the city, they have to make plans for heaven's sake. What if they win? What are we going to do? And so, you know, it's all, you keep things in perspective. From my memory, there was nothing really said in the addressing. There's no newspaper articles on the wall and all that kind of stuff. But we were aware of the situation and, you know, the basic thought was, let's rain on their parade. Game six will go down in Flyers history. It is the night that the spectrum shook. It was a heck of a game. And from what I understand, the atmosphere was incredible. Can you relive that night? Do you remember anything specific about it? Well, it's not so much reliving the night because everyone just remembers when, you know, J.J. Daniels scored. Yep. And, you know, I was actually talking about that the other night. You know, all the concerts that had come into the spectrum in previous years. And, you know, they, they have the meters to you know register the sound and the 
building and if ACDC speakers are too loud and they you know, turn them down, you're going to shake the foundation loose. But when JJ swore, that was the loudest the spectrum ever was. And uh, it, was just, it was just an unreal moment and talked about the fun of being involved in, in the playoffs and so on. Well, I'll tell you what, that was such a neat experience to be able to be at the center of that. It must have been incredible. Unfortunately, Game 7 goes back to Rexall Place, and many people consider this one of the best playoff series in Hockey League history. You guys came back. Do you remember your feelings before the game in Edmonton? Oh, just being excited that, hey, we're here. One game, you know, 60 minutes away from the Stanley Cup, and we couldn't wait. You know, we couldn't wait to, to uh, get on the ice. Uh, we had played four playoff series that were tough, were hard. Edmonton kind of waltzed through the playoffs, if you will. And we were used to being tired. I don't know if they were used to being tired the same way we were. Let's just get the puck dropped and go get them. Game 7 starts off with a bang for the Philadelphia Flyers. There's a power play goal scored by Murray Craven. But unfortunately, that would be it that evening for goal scoring. The Oilers would win 3-1. to one. You had just gone through a exhausting several months playing in the playoffs. When you lose game seven, can you describe the emotions after losing a game seven and something like that? Well, I think everyone deals with the, with the loss such as that in their own way and deals with it differently. Yes, there was a sense of satisfaction that look what we just accomplished, but then there was a sense of frustration that we were there and we were almost there and, you know we could have got done this or could have done that and I, I think most of my teammates and I know myself you know you quite often you still think back to the game seven and you know what if type of scenario you know moving forward a lot of years uh, especially in retirement when I can't play anymore and I know I don't have a chance to win a Stanley Cup there is a sense of frustration or you're, you're reminded of how close we were whenever you watch the playoffs. You know, to be honest, whenever the championship trophy is awarded, I just turn the TV off. I'm pissed off. I didn't get a chance to win. And uh, so, like I said, everyone deals with it and processes it and remembers it in their own way. And my way, I'm not, not that I'm mad or, or whatever. It's, it's unfortunate that I didn't have a chance to uh, celebrate with my teammates with the Stanley Cup uh, in the team picture. Ron Hextall ends up being named the MVP of the series. The Flyers team was very good. Ron definitely deserved the MVP award. If Ron, though, for whatever reason, didn't win it, was there another player on that team on your team that sticks out to you as maybe someone who would have been deserving of that award? Well, you know what? You could have picked a handful of players. Sure. So many guys, you know, went through the wall at well. So many guys were playing injured. But, you know, Hexy was the, was the clear guy that made the big save time after time after time after time. And it was, I'm, I'm glad that he got that trophy. I know you see the interviews accepting the trophy. I think he was ready to tear the head off anybody that come in. <laughs> Asked him a stupid question, but uh, if he didn't win it, it would have been so unfortunate because he was the bike. And quite often, you know, they award the trophy based on what the player does in the final round. Right. Um, it's supposed to be a trophy for four rounds. 
and actually pay attention to that who they awarded to now because I, I look at the complete playoff, I look at the complete team and who wins the trophy and it gets me bad. I get bad when they award it based predominantly on what they did in the last and final round. How did you feel about Ovechkin winning it last year then? Well, I, I didn't want Washington to win the Cup one, and, I, and I'm not a big fan of Ovi. I respect Ovi. Sure. Played and all that stuff, but uh, I, I would always get frustrated when they would compare him to Sidney Crosby, and people would make a case that he's a better player than Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby's one of the best players of all times, and he's getting shoulders more valuable to a team than Ovechkin is. So what got with a couple of years ago when Melvin won the, the MVP when they beat Detroit, I got frustrated at that because I didn't think he deserved it. This was your second time in the finals. And we talked a lot about this Flyers team and how talented they were. Do you consider this playoff run one of the highlights of your career? I look back and it was great times. And, and uh, it's just great when I see the teammates from that I played with in the 80s, those four years with Mike Keenan and so on. And uh, it's, it's good times. And, you know, after the game, I, I tell the story often. People are often wonder and curious, you know, what does one do? Well, we flew back to Philadelphia right after the, the game and, and they ran out of beer on the plane. <laughs> and I'm like, how does this happen? If we win, we're drinking up a storm. If we lose, we're drinking up a storm, drowning our sorrows. And so it's one of it was the first time I drank red wine. And so a lot of us were drinking those little bottles of red wine. She <laughs> would get on the airplane and my wife laughs. Like, what the heck happened to everybody? You, you see the interviews that are done when we got off the plane. And like all our teeth are red, our tongue's red. Or, it's quite a funny landing in, in Philly, but... Um, you know, the end of the season is quite unique because you've battled for, you know, since September, since training camp, and you don't have to get up and go to practice the next morning. And so there is a, a lot of team bonding, if you will, that happens after a season. A, a bunch of us, we went to uh, the Evergreen Tavern, which was open 24 hours. We had quite a, quite a laugh there. They brought their band over. So at 7 o'clock in the morning, they had a full band playing at the Evergreen Tavern. After playing all night, guys hopped on a plane, Ran out of alcohol, decided to go to the Evergreen Tavern, and uh, had a band come in at 7 a.m. for you. Yep, so I called them up. They came over, and uh, they had, uh, we had quite a party in there. And, you know, Sparky was there, and Keenan was there, a bunch of players, and Paul Holmgren, and uh, we just had a great time. And 11 o'clock came, we ordered pizza. Oh, my God. I'll tell you, this Flyers team sounded like it was a lot of fun. Did you have any any yeah. fun stories that you can share? And they don't have to be anything. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But do you have anything fun that maybe occurred that maybe gave you a good laugh throughout that year? You know, once again, I get asked that question often. And, and the thing is, is it, 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 was, it was just fun all the time. Sure. And, uh, I guess that was the atmosphere that we had created. And that's why we were successful. Uh, I can honestly say, look, it's fun to practice. It's even more fun to play. And, you know, granted, we were winning. So that made it funner, if you will. Right. It's always laughing. There is, you know, to read about in, in all the sports now. And the dressing room's not together. They're not together. This, this, and that. But I, 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 looking back, I just just remember all good. So tell everyone what you're up to now. I know you're doing a lot of work with the Flyers Alumni Association. I know you guys have a ton of good events coming up. Um, where can people find out more about that? 
Well, I, I moved back to Philly but, uh, three years ago. My wife's from here. All my kids are graduated, and uh, three of the four are married and live in various places. And so we said, well, why are we sitting in Ottawa? Why don't we just move back to Philadelphia? She's from a large family, as I said earlier, and, and so it was a good move back. And, uh, I started work with the Flyers. I'm director of community development with the Flyers, which is a lot of a lot of fun. I'm out in the community, out doing this and uh, a whole bunch of things with kids, you know, hockey clinics and uh, school visits and uh, so on and so on. And I'm also president of the Flyer Alumni, which is a lot of fun because I get to plan events and bring in the alumni guys from uh, all over North America, Europe, great uh, fundraising or charity events. And uh, so it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. We had a game to celebrate 50 years of Flyers hockey there in uh, January of 2017 and uh, we had been in all eras of hockey and uh, we had 60 guys back for that and, uh, we had a game and we sold the, the I keep saying the Spectrum it's the Wells Fargo Center uh, we sold out the, the Wells Fargo Center and you talk about an atmosphere it was unbelievable uh, well, it's pretty cool to be involved with the alumni and as I said earlier that the alumni in all the leagues are, are great, and so many alumni groups or associations do so much in the various communities, and it's fun. I can't be the only one that's always wondered what happens when a team loses after Game 7. I mean, we always hear about teams that win, they go out, they party, they drink hard, but I've always wondered what happens to the losing team. Do they just go home? Do they just stay at the arena? Do they spend the night and go home the next morning? good to know that the Philadelphia Flyers had a sense of humor about it and went out and partied and still had a good time, even though things didn't turn out for them after the 87 finals. Anyways, thanks for joining us. We'll have another episode up Monday at 8 a.m. In the meantime, enjoy your weekend. We'll catch up with you next time on Snapshots in Hockey History.